Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Art of the Matter, where we aim to present a reasonable, rational, applicable faith. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Uh, God, help us to share Jesus by the Spirit and with love. In Jesus' name, amen. So we got a lot to talk about tonight, and I want to begin by stoking the fires for you guys out there on a couple ministries that we like. Take advantage of these. Check My Church is the first one. Site is really, really well done, and uh, it's a perfect fit for the Western U.S. churches, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Washington, California, all of us out here. And even the world, if it goes in the way they've set it up, it's really, really good. Sarah and Joe do honest work. They try to have unbiased views. They're looking just for pastors to engage with them and to answer like five questions they have about what they do. They don't care about what you are about. If you're charismatic or futurist or rhetorist or any of that. Uh, so check out checkmychurch.org. There's ex-Mormon files. Uh, com with Bishop Earl Erskine, and he has hundreds and hundreds of really good interviews with people who have left Mormonism and uh, entered into Christianity full force with the Lord and Savior as their king. And, and, uh, and that's what's good about it is it has people who have left Mormonism, but they've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ and haven't tossed the baby Jesus out with the bathwater, so to speak. So check that out. And then there's TalkingToMormons.com jam-packed with information, a website with tremendous insight uh, relative to the LDS Church, its teachings, its claims. Uh, all of them are excellent, and you, you can see Seth and Wendy are putting the uh, links to those websites down below. Um, because They really focus on Jesus as Lord and King and away from religion, so check them out. Now for something... <laughs> I can't even do it. I I wanted I really want to do it. I don't know if I can do it. I I've just lost all all effort to try to act about anything. It's just foolishness to me. I have this all written out here and I was going to say I was wrong. I was so wrong. I can't even do it. It just makes me laugh. Jesus is coming back. He is. I know it now. I repent. I'm so sorry. Iraq has been attacked and it's attacking back. It's the last days. I, I can't do it. Everyone fear. The end is near. Get your gear. It's just like, it's unbelievable what people do. Have you ever looked at the history of Iraq and Iran and the wars they've had? It's like, and the wars that they've been involved in? It's like bloodshed for 5,000 years. And, you know, oh, wait, I believe in, the, it's, okay, forget my eschatology, he's coming back. 56 people have died in a funeral trample yesterday. I mean, I'm not laughing about it. It's a sad thing, but, you know, 56 people die on boats every day. And, and people shoot bombs at each other in this world. It's not a sign of the end of the world. And that's exactly what we were talking about. The bad results of eschatology last week, last night, the things that come along with bad eschatology. And this is one of them. And 
I am not political. I am not against Trump. I am not for Obama. I'm none of it. I, I per- personally, frankly, sad as many of you will find this, don't care either way. I think it's going to happen, whatever happens. They're doing what they do. And I think everyone's trying, okay? So, but I think that this bad eschatology of futurism fuels um, the, uh, we have to support Israel at all costs idea. Now, it's not that I'm for or against what's happening in Iraq, but I'm just saying bad eschatology causes people to jump on some kind of uh, really big bandwagons based on the idea that Jesus is coming back to, to Jerusalem. And that's just not the case. It's not going to be. And, and so I had to try to sort of start it off. And I guess it's true. I have become boring. I can't fake it anymore. I can't even pretend to be upset about something. Uh, my eschatology remains the same. But I do want to make something really clear. And this is going to confuse you. Wendy and Wendy's really upset about this. But you have to understand this clearly. I am not a preterist. Now, you have to understand what I mean by that. I'm not a full preterist. I'm not a partial preterist. I don't want to be thrown in the camp of a being a preterist. Why? One, it sounds like pederast, which, is, which means I'm a child rapist. But the more important reason is because they bring with them as a group a bunch of stuff I don't buy into. I love Don Preston and Glenn Hill, but they have views I do not agree with as preterists. And preterists writ officially in large and a group of people together as preterists, they believe a whole bunch of stuff that I don't believe, and I believe a whole bunch of stuff they don't believe. What do we agree on? We agree on the fact that Jesus said I'm coming back and he came back to his own when he said he would, and the history shows it, the Bible teaches it, and I am not a futurist and neither are they. So we agree with that. And so and it's my fault because I have called myself a preterist. Because, why? Because I've been lazy. And if you say that, everyone understands, and it's just an automatic catchphrase, oh, okay, now we get what he believes. But I only agree with them in the fact that they say Jesus came back and all the biblical prophecy, I'm a full preterist in that sense, has been fulfilled. I do agree with them in that sense. But there's a whole bunch of other things uh, I don't agree with. So apologies if if I've added to the confusion by being lazy and just throwing myself into that group. I do believe in full preterism relative to the fulfillment of the biblical text and that Jesus has come back taken his bride, and we now live in the fulfilled age. That is true, okay? Uh, But the interpretation of what this looks like is really different than what my preterist brothers and sisters believe. And that being said, listen, I don't part ways with people who are pederasts or uh, partial pederasts or uh, futurists or amillennials, whatever. I think that they have blinded themselves a little bit And I think they won't see what's really there, but they think the same thing about me. So bottom line, there is this, this, but I see them as brothers and sisters, not going to let it uh, uh, split us up. And and speaking of that, I want to tell you something I just learned, and I think this is really informative. I just learned it myself, so perhaps you'll understand, now you'll have a proof text to help support this in your life. We have... 
been talking about agape love the past seven weeks last year, December, November, December. And I would just learn something that Paul says about it that will really, really help you because it's really helped me. In the first chapter of Philippians, Paul says, I'm praying for you guys all the time. And then he says at verse nine, and this I pray, says I've been praying for you, this I pray, that your love, and that's agape, agapeo in the Greek, may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Think about that sentence for a minute. How, what Paul is at saying he prays for, that their love will abound. How does love abound more and more in knowledge and in judgment? That is the question. How does agape love abound in that? And that's his prayer for them. So it's a, it's a great prayer, right? That if we could pray for anybody, it would be that they love more, more and more. But Paul says that, it, that that love abounds in knowledge and in judgment. So uh, it seems to me, as I've studied that passage this past week, that Paul wants to include in the definition of agape love, listen carefully, something called intelligent, informed love. Intelligent and informed love. So when you speak about agape love, it is both intelligent and it is informed. Okay? What does that mean? Uh, What it means is that they should not base their love on touchy-feely, emotional uproars, Uh, that we fall into, but they should exercise more and more, abound in their love by reason through intelligence, uh, a love that's based on facts and has its foundations in logic and uh, not mere blind affections or emotion. That's why he says, my prayer for you is that your love will abound more and more in knowledge, gnosko, and in um, judgment. We're going to talk about that second word in a second. This is so vitally important principle in the faith. Our love is commended and commanded as to be agape-like, but Paul qualifies it as a love that has a brain. It's a love that has a brain. That's fascinating. So I feel badly as I'm driving somewhere downtown and I see all the homeless people walking the streets in the snow. And I just feel so bad that I go to Target, I take out my credit card, it's almost maxed out, I max it out on gloves, and I'm irresponsibly just impetuously driven because of all those people who don't have gloves, and I rush back downtown and I start handing them out to everybody on the street that I can find. That's one way that we would call that Christian love. It's emotionally driven, but I'm really not using much logic or reason when I do it. It's all just based on what I see and what needs to be done, right? Paul here points out first that a Christian's love should have intelligence. It should abound more and more in knowledge. Knowledge, that means in information, right? 
So it has reason. It thinks it takes time to assess a, a situation and, and uh, within the confines of the circumstances that the situation is found so that the love that we share and express and deliver since it's a verb has value and purpose. You see, it doesn't just react emotionally to a situation. It actually acts and has value and purpose in the thing that's being done. This is how God loves. You see, that's how he loves. And we're talking about agape love. So I'm really grateful for the expression Paul provided because it's so important in the Christian mind and to our liberties as believers. Because if you are captive by emotional love, that's a form of bondage. But if you take those emotions, which are good, you can have empathy and sympathy for someone and move you to do something kind. But then your mind should get involved, your knowledge and your judgment of a situation. And in that you are liberated from the bondage of pure emotionalism. So it tells us that our love ought to be reflective and administered in light of circumstances and not just emotional responses. But then Paul adds, in knowledge and in all judgment. That your love will abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And the best English word we have for that is in all discernment. This is a fantastic passage because if it's one question I hear all the time is what is love? What is love? And we talk about it, but this one is helping us define it even better. So to love with knowledge and discernment, how liberating is that? It it really rounds out the biblical definition of agape love and clearly helps emotionally impetuous lovers emotionally impetuous lovers in the faith to recognize that genuine, authentic love includes information about the situation, logic, and discernment. You get that? Why would God want that to be part of it? Because then you are freed from just the impetuousness running to Kmart and handing out gloves to everybody you see and feeling like you're doing what Jesus would do. So um, the interesting thing is that many people, they reject this kind of love that Paul is talking about. They want Christians to be emotional lovers. Uh, They want thoughtless love, unreasonable, even irresponsible love. Why do they want that? Because it benefits their agenda when they can have somebody respond to them and their wants and needs and desires thoughtlessly, irresponsibly. But when someone is speaking with you or needs you or asks you of something or whatever it is, and you respond, as Paul says, with more and more, it's love abounding in uh, knowledge and discernment. the, the, The predators don't like that at all. You're not loving That's what they'll throw out at you, right? But you are actually being loving. You're being loving the way God is loving because he doesn't just throw something at at us. He brings in the information, the circumstances, and the discernment before the the, uh, act of love. God is love. Whatever he does is a loving thing, you see? So not talking about gushing service of money and favors, 
but it includes taking the facts and then discerning the facts relative to the situation at hand. This is not to suggest, I'm not suggesting we refuse um, loving actions and outreach that are driven by our emotions completely. I'm not saying that. But I am suggesting that we take the time, which is a loving verb, take the time to assess a situation. Someone comes up to you. I'm sorry I use the homeless thing all the time because that's what I face living downtown. Someone comes up to you and they're like, man, you know, can you just help me with just a little money for lunch? And you, you're a Christian. You say, I, Sean McCraney says, I have to love. Yeah, here, right? Here's my wallet. Go. But Paul says, yeah, you can have empathy for them. And you say, what is the best thing I can do for this person that's tweaking and is asking me for money? Well, I can take a minute and I can find out about, I can get knowledge, find out information and facts, and I can use discernment to decide if the most loving thing I would do for that person is to withhold the cash. Then we're talking about the kind of love that God has, you see? It's not that it would be more loving to give him cash. It would probably be more unloving because in the suffering, he might kick the habit and, 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 and wake up. So it, it, I just want to show, though, in this passage, one last thing. The offsetting thing that Paul includes, word that he includes in that passage, that brings us back to the passionate, emotive kind of response is that his prayer was that their love would be more and more abounding. And so what that tells us is that in knowledge and in discernment, but that it's, 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 um, it's out there and it's really trying to help understand and help in those ways. It abounds, right? Like God's love abounds. And so we're always seeking to help and improve people and do what it is, but you've got to be discerning and you've got to be able to assess the situation and, and use the information at hand in order to love properly. All right, just a thought for you. From last night's show, fallout from bad eschatology. What is bad eschatology? Plain and simple, I believe it is to teach, believe that Jesus is coming back to the world to save believers and to destroy the rest. I think that's bad eschatology. And I think the Bible supports that my stance. And I'm going to go to the board in a minute and explain how. We got a few comments on the subject that I'm going to get to, but I want to explain some things. And I want to start by going to the board and showing you how I think and why I think about the eschatology I think about today and, and, and how it, when it comes to eschatology, people are really interesting. And uh, I've been around it now long enough. You know, it happened a few years back when the lights came on and I started to see it. And typically when it comes to it, people cling to what they've been taught. There's the first rule. And I did that too. Not always. Some people haven't been taught these things, but they often cling to what they've been taught. Second, they cling to what makes most sense to them. And, and since it makes most sense to them that Jesus ascended and said, I'm going to come back and that there's all kinds of other factors that go in with him ascending like a millennium, a thousand years and all this stuff, destruction of the world, as the King James says, it makes sense to them that he hasn't come back yet. The third thing is they cling to 
what is most popular within the people in their circle of influence. Not always what's most popular in the world, but whoever they hang with in a, on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis, their people, whatever the group thinks, usually that will influence somebody. Not always, but, but often. And then they will cling to what they can understand. And that's a little bit different from uh, what makes sense to them. And I know that's, I'm, I'm, I'm splitting hairs here, but what they can understand when it comes to all the factors, they take the most complex factors and up to the level they can understand the most complex factor, they'll, under, they'll embrace their view, right? And they typically won't cling to something that they can't understand because they're too lazy to push themselves out of the uh, box and learn something new that might challenge their peer group or challenge what they were taught and grew up with, et cetera, et cetera. Got all that? Then with all of these things undergirding our beliefs, people then see their eschatological view based on those undergirding principles. And they and me too, I have to admit, I've been subject to it and I might still be under it. That's the other thing. We delude ourselves thinking that we've become clean and free of it. I and mean, sometimes we're, we're fooling ourselves. So, and I fooled myself in the past, but you then move forward with these, these lenses and you see the world through those lenses and you just can't take alternate views. They just, they just blow your mind. So just remember, this is the mindset of most faithful LDS people. They say, I know the Book of Mormon is true. I know Joseph Smith was a prophet. I know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a real living prophet today who receives revelation from God like unto Moses. They know because they were taught it. Their peer group believes it. They're too lazy to look outside of it. And when you confront them with it, it's this. And this is the same thing that happens with eschatology. And so I have a lot of you guys who are fans and you write me emails and I'm going to read some and you say, I love you, Sean. I love you, but you are so wrong. You're so off, right? And, and you're doing the same thing that I experienced when I was Mormon and I was saying it to Christians. And then when I left the church, what the Mormons would say to me and all the stuff, right? So I just want to remember, I just want you to know, I arrived at my eschatological conclusions, um, uh, and I have grown more and more and more convinced of it, not less and less and less as I read the word every day and study it, not just read it. And I'm translating, whatever that means, into a new New Testament. More and more, not less and less. That's one thing that guides my life. If I have a belief and as I go through my life, I continue to increase in that belief more strongly by the evidences because I'm seeking, that's, that tells me a lot. If I go and I pers I'm pursuing knowledge in something and it becomes less and less convinced, that's something that you should include in your own uh, repertoire of thinking because less and less convinced is telling you something, right? That's what happened to me with Trinity. And, and I know people go nuts over that one. But so I just want to explain a couple facts to you about how I got to the eschatology. I know you know I got the book that was sent to me from Canada, but first... I taught and, be and believed in futurism. <laughs> I was a futurist from Calvary Chapel. I taught it, believed it. My whole worldview was around that. Came out of Mormonism, thought they had the answer. 
And then I, I, I studied some of it and that was it. It was good for me. Secondly, I had zero desire to change that view. I had, did not have any intention at all to change that view, which I was set on and was too lazy to step outside of it and search further. Okay. Third, when I was challenged with alternate views, I put the blinders on. No, 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 no. You do not have the truth. I've learned this. Chuck Smith, he's a great guy, salt of the earth. He tutored me. I, I love and respect him. He was a futurist. He was right. You are wrong. I did it. So I've been there where you've been. And this leads me to another thing I just want to try to explain. The thought came to me. Dave is going to go. This takes a minute to warm up the machinery. But I want to kind of explain something to you. And I hope it makes sense. But I'm going to use the example of trying to prove that Bill steals chocolate. Okay? I'm not going to write it out. Bill steals chocolate. Okay? Way over here on the left, we have that Bill worked for Hershey's for 30 years under the eye of security cameras and never, ever was Bill seen stealing chocolate. So that's this factor. I'm just going to call it the never factor. He was never seen stealing chocolate. Now we're trying to prove that Bill steals chocolate. Got that? Now over here we have a few people say Bill steals chocolate. We know he does. It's hearsay. A couple people say it. Here we have 10 people say they witnessed him taking it from a store. Okay? And then over here, way over at the farthest uh, right side, we have video, we have cops seeing him do it, we have uh, storekeepers doing it, we have him confessing it, <laughs> we have all sorts of these other factors uh, proving that Bill steals chocolate. You got that? The way people see their eschatology is they say, and I, and I see it, and I go about it the opposite way, is they say, we have this factor here. We have, and whatever they want to call it, the thousand year thing, the, the two witnesses laying dead in the street, um, the 666, the wars, Satan being bound. I mean, we can go on and on. Whatever it is, your little X factor of never and it hasn't happened is, this is the thing you cling to, okay? It doesn't matter what these things are to you. You don't care because you have this one thing that nobody's been able to prove to you otherwise. And so it allows you to maintain that comfortability level of where you're at. All of those things relative to eschatology can be answered. They really can. All of them. But everyone has, um, we can just call it the hook. They have the hook and it keeps you into that position even though we have this where we have a number of factors that are pretty close to being irrefutable. 
And then when we move all the way to this side, we have, and when it comes to eschatology, and it comes to the New Testament, and it comes to the things secular historians have said, and it comes to the things Jesus has said, and that the apostles said, we have an abundance of stuff you cannot explain away, cannot get rid of, all right? The way I think in my world is I look for the biggest crowd of fish. And when we have the majority of the evidences being irrefutable, then I say, there's something we're not understanding about this that is promoted. There's just some, the one thing never makes me not believe. It's the many that caused me to believe and caused me to think that the one thing has just not been properly understood. In the case of Bill stealing chocolate, when we have all these witnesses, I say he was smart enough not to take it under the camera's eye, right? There's another explanation instead of the dogma. But what people do is they, they accept this with all their heart, the few little tidbits they can get, and they ignore all of these. I do the opposite in the way I think. I say, wait a second. There's just too many things where, where Jesus would be wrong. The apostles would be wrong. The secular historians would be wrong. And, when, and, then, and, and, and that can't be in my mind. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust the word. I'm going to trust the apostles. I'm going to trust the secular historians. So therefore, whatever comeback people have the one, two, three, or four comebacks that they have to support their bad eschatology. If I can't, if I don't have a good answer for it, I'm like, there's something we're missing and I'll wait until we find it out. And I'm imploring you to do the same thing when it comes to this view, because this view changes everything. And if we don't change things in our purview, we're going to keep making the same damn mistakes and doing the same stupid things year after decade after millennia, and, and nothing gets better. It just gets worse. You see? Okay. So let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. I'm going to read our uh, emails, respond to those, and if we don't have any calls, we'll wrap it up. On the things that bad eschatology cause, and we talked about them last night. You should watch that show. (coughs) Three Itty Bitty Piggies says, the truth will set you free. Amen, brother. I agree with you. Jeanette Silhouette said, the way I was raised, I can hear someone say, if you were living right, you wouldn't have to fear. You see, I mentioned last night that fear is one of the things that bad eschatology produces. And she says that she can hear people in her church saying, well, if you were living right, you wouldn't have to fear. And then she said, I always wondered what was wrong with me that I couldn't live the right way. Not for a long period of time, although I tried to conform for years. And this is exactly. They use the bad eschatology to get you to conform, to fear. And then if you conform and you have no fears, then they have been able to control you. And I I don't think this is an overt intention on all pastors or most pastors. 
It's just something that happens. They, they just in, in, instinctively know that when people have bought into futurism, they're more compliant than somebody who's bought into the, those tenets of full preterism that we talked about. So good point, Jeanette. Old religion dystopia said knowing versus belief. Good job, brother. A big, happy yah. I don't know. That's how he spelled it. Uh, J-Dub says, love your teaching. Truth in your words here tonight. Thank you. Guardian Fury wrote, religious fog, F-O-G. Fear, obligation, guilt equals religious institutions. Couldn't agree more. And that's what bad eschatology helps uh, produce. Fear, obligation, guilt. What does everybody who's an ardent futurist think? I hope I'm in church if the rapture happens on Sunday. <laughs> God, I mean, talk about bondage. Doesn't make any sense. So um, that is what he said. Ultra R said, you should invite James White again and have a discussion with him. Okay. Uh, James White is a fine man who I'm sure loves the Lord, perhaps more than me, perhaps more than you. I don't know his heart. He seems to be a guy who really believes and he searches the scripture and he ardently promotes it. Um, but um, he assumes a lot of things without any authorization at all. And so James and I are not going to get anywhere with him sitting down with me and me with him because he, he assumes things that he has no right to assume. He doesn't have anything in the Bible that says he gets to use that today and to describe it today or the letters that were all included there that they were written to us today. He doesn't have any authority from that. The Bible doesn't say, and, and James White will take this message and do that. I don't know where any of this stuff comes from. So I don't see it that way. I'm sure he means well. He's a debater. And I, you know, I've learned... It, it, Debating doesn't do much. So I'm going to present my best. James will do his thing, and, and, and everybody will, uh, will go on from there. Hudson TD writes, The preterist view is way beyond bad eschatology. It is simply satanic. Now, I don't know if he got mixed up or she got mixed up. The preterist view is way beyond bad eschatology. I wasn't saying the preterist view is bad eschatology, Hudson. I was saying the futurist views are bad eschatology. And so if you got that mixed up, that's the thing. But if you're saying that the preterist view is simply satanic, I have to say, what? What? Simply satanic? Do you think Don Preston and, and little Glenn Hill, he's not little, but this, in terms of his heart, this kind old man are satanic. Do you really believe that? And there, do you believe all these people who who believe that Jesus came back to his own, like he said he would, are satanic. So this is another thing that bad eschatology uh, promotes, is that if you're not in harmony with it, then you are on the outside and you're evil. And that's happened to me. I mean, people just, I mean, my word is nothing in this state, at least. You know, McCraney, oh yeah, he's just off the Richter. And that's from a number of components, but this is one of them, my eschatology. It's people just cannot take the idea that I believe Jesus came back. And I got to be frank with you. When I first believed it, I couldn't believe Jesus came back. It was the first thing I said, that's impossible. It was so beyond my thinking. So I went in like you may be going in and looking at it. Okay. M.H. wrote, 
with all of the studying you've done, one, do you think Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? MH, I want to tell you, thank you for questions. Okay, that first question. It's what led me to start wondering about my eschatology. The reason is, is because in Hebrews, it says, I think it's chapter one or two, that Jesus will be at the right hand of God until. And I, I stopped when I was, I was teaching through the book of Hebrews. And I said, until what? There's a, there's a period of time where Jesus is going to be at the right hand of God. And then that period of time is going to stop. That's what the scriptures say. And so when I read that uh, image, I, that made me think, whoa. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, Paul says there, listen, then comes the end. Talking about when Jesus comes back, he says, then comes the end. And he says, and this will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen. And Jesus will turn everything over to his father so that God will be all in all. And there's an implication there that that is the until. So to answer your question, I do not believe Jesus is at the right hand of, of God. I believe there is one on the throne and that Jesus brought us in reconciliation to that one, God, his father. I believe Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And I think he's there, but he's not at the right hand as a mediator any longer over a dispensation of people under the law. So it's a good question. It doesn't besmirch Jesus. It doesn't diminish him in my eyes, but he served his purpose as God with us in flesh. So I don't think he's at the right hand of the father. And I think scripture supports that. And do you view it like someone, when someone departs earth, that their body dies, but their soul immediately resurrects? Yes, I do. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that there is a, a physical, corporate, material body, and there is a spiritual body. Paul, just, just read 1 Corinthians 15. And so I am of the belief that the, the resurrection is a spiritual event now. That in Jesus' day, there were physical resurrections, especially in his case, because why? He had to come back with that body. He had to show that he rose from the grave. They had to touch the prince of his death. But for us, we step into that resurrection that as soon as you die, I don't care who it is, they experience the resurrection. And it's a spiritual resurrection. They get a heavenly body equipped to abide there. And all this idea of, you know, the bodies coming up from the sailors that were drowned in the sea in 69 AD or whatever are going to come up, you know, 2000 years later and be, that is just not what the scripture says. So it's another good question from you. And then he says the third one, and do you think there's a white throne judgment? But instead of heaven or hell, a judgment is more like, did you look to God and walk in faith and accomplish anything of value here on earth? And, and I'd like to hear what you think. And I don't think there is a great white throne judgment any longer. I think that all occurred for them then of that age fulfilled. And I think those who believed on Jesus and those who rejected Jesus, they experienced the great white throne judgment that's talked about in Revelation. For us, I think the judgment happens when we die, we're taken up, we're given a resurrected body immediately that we will inhabit in for eternity. And that body has abilities to get close to God or not close to God. And I think that all happens within the new Jerusalem, which is above. I think it's all spiritual. And, and I don't think there is any of the great white throne judgment, nor do I think that hell is a, is a, a ongoing principle and all of that stuff. And I think the whole world has been reconciled to God. It's just the proximity that the 
unbelievers will have to him versus the proximity believers will have to him uh, is very different. That's how I see it. It's based off what Revelation has to teach from a, a, a perspective. So he says, thanks for the HOTM team. That's you guys in there. And he says, peace. And so we say, Irene to you, which is peace in Greek. Indigo Child says, very good, Sean. Love the show. Thanks, Indigo Child 79. Appreciate your comments. Uh, P. Wentworth. That's J.P. Wentworth. <laughs> he gives four thumbs up. Thanks, J.P. Wentworth. And Fisty, that's an interesting name, we should take care of the earth. I talked about how one of the problems with bad eschatology is people don't give a rat's rear end about the earth. And what they say is, hey, man, it's all going to burn anyway. I don't care. And they're like, throw their trash or whatever. They don't recycle. I'm not a big recycler either. I got to admit it to you. I come from that age where, yeah, yeah, whatever. But, you know, I'm starting to learn, okay, maybe I should be more responsible for our future generations. Maybe I should think more about the earth because the the world is not going to be destroyed. The scripture says that. It says the ages would be destroyed, but not the world. Nowhere. In fact, it says the opposite. This world will be forever. So if the world's going to be forever, I would think, like I said last night, Christians ought to be the first ones to care for the world and care for the things that we have been given by God. And appreciate them, right? Instead, we often have the opposite. Well, he is saying, Fisty says, listen, Christians should be good stewards of the earth. That was taught to us from the oldest book in the Bible, Job, until the last word was written. Yes, I've heard many Christians disagree with the earth and that it's ending in 12 years. But at the same time, they are throwing plastic into recycling bins because it's the right thing to do. Uh, And he says... I don't really understand the, the wording. And maybe if you read that and understand the wording, you're better than me. But it, I, I can't, he seems, seems to twist something in there. But I think what he's saying is Christians don't, all Christians don't take advantage of the earth's um, uh, properties and throw away junk and litter and everything. They're not all like that. Many of them will do Good things with the earth because it's the right thing to do. And I agree. And if I, if I spread too broad of a swath there in indicting Christians on being uncaring, but I gotta, I gotta tell you, you know, mo, many Christians I know, they don't really care about anything like that because they really do believe the whole earth's gonna burn. The universe is gonna burn. Everything is gonna burn and be wrapped up into a scroll. Poof. So why would you care about it? Especially if he's coming in the future. And the seas are going to dry up and all that stuff that they take literally. Anyway, love you, Sean, he says. Thank you, Fisty. And then Victor Renee, and we have an off-air question that we'll get from Florida. And then we have two callers. But Victor says, love you, Sean, but disagree on the preterist view. I think that it takes theological gymnastics to get to this view. This is preterism you teach. Jesus hasn't come back yet, question mark. Not all of us who believe in the rapture are scared or manipulated, etc. I would agree with that. And I do tend to make my point, try to push things in a certain corner. He says, I'm aware some people use it as a manipulation tool and see why you dislike it. But don't lump us with Mormons or Catholics because their doctrines are corrupted to the core. A good, healthy view of it is to just always live for the Lord in peace and not fear and always be ready because we can die tomorrow and be with the Lord. I agree with that. And that's the point. If Jesus comes 
uh, 20 years from now and you're going to die in, in 10, you're going to live your life as if he's coming tomorrow. And I, knowing, believing that he already came back, live my life as, as if it may be my last. Because I might be, uh, die and go to him. That is my rapture. That's my second coming. That's my resurrection. That's my great white throne judgment. And so nothing changes for the individual Christian under that. Nothing at all. The only thing that changes is the idea of Jesus coming back and everybody being like, wow, and everybody being, ah, and I just don't believe that. So, uh, and it's because of what the scripture says, but I agree what you say there. He says the rapture can happen in hundreds of years from now and such times isn't for us to know. Also, we must not be escapists, but live for Christ, evangelize and influence here on the earth. Also, I don't like the type that are alarmists and scaring people with their false predictions of Christ's return. These types are always having prophecies and putting burdens on people they can't themselves bear. And I agree. And, and that's, those are the extremes I was talking about last night. So you're right about that. And, and, and I apologize if I, if I categorized all futurists, uh, non-full preterists as that, Victor. However, brother... Right, send us an email and give us your address and let me send you a book. It's so simple. It's by, it's by Glenn Hill. And anybody who wants this book, we can get, get you one. And we'll get it to you for free. It costs us money. We'll send it to you. We'll send you another book. It's not the end of the world. And we'll let you look at what many early church fathers wrote too. And you can see what, what the 666 was. You can see what, what many of the early church, uh, when it, many secular historians wrote and how what they wrote absolutely fulfilled the descriptions Jesus gave of the end times. And, and, and the reason we want you to understand that and we want you to search it out is because when you understand it, you become free. You become free from all the negative things that bad doctrine creates, which includes a loss of liberty. Now, again, if you want to believe he's coming tomorrow, okay. Again, many people do. They come to campus and they believe and they tell me, I don't agree with you, son. I say, oh, it's okay. But we are all about being liberated. Now, unfortunately, there's another side to that liberation. And that's this responsibility to continue to be a Christian once you've discovered that it all happened back then. And I mean, do you really have the faith to now walk in a life realizing that Jesus has done it all and there is no uh, him coming in the east in the clouds anymore and you're going to live your life till you take your last breath and be responsible for it. And for many people, that's too much. So that's another reason they don't want that. They want to bear this burden on their back because they don't want to walk around without having that hope of something giving them answers in the future. We have an off-air question. Josh from Florida. Let me put my spectacles on. Gee. Josh from Florida, through the Holy Spirit, can we be free from sin by not reacting to our thoughts? Yes. Yeah. There's sins I, uh, that used to have me captive when I was younger. Uh, and I'm not talking about sexual sins because I'm getting old. Uh, and, and hormones are draining out my left foot. Uh, but there are sins in, in anger and violence. Well, maybe that's testosterone too. Uh, 
impatience and non-love and selfishness that by the Holy Spirit, I've been able to overcome those things. And they've, and some of them have been eradicated. And I believe the Holy Spirit will, but with God's help, you can overcome these things uh, when that happens. So good question. Sarah Leanne Young says, heart of the matter, Sean, do you believe the LDS church really was hoarding all that money for the second coming? Or was that just their cover for something else? If it was the second coming, why aren't Christian churches doing the same thing? Maybe now they will. It's a great question. I don't really trust anything corporate Mormon t- says. So, you know, saving it for the second coming. No, saving it for the next shopping mall, more likely. And I just don't trust corporate uh, Mormonism. Why would they be saving money for the second coming? Jesus could bring the gold up from the sea and pay for anything they wanted. You know, so I, I, I don't buy into that, Sarah. But uh, if they, uh, the Christian churches, that's interesting thought. How come they're not uh, establishing trust funds for the second coming too? Let's go to Dwayne in Walnut, California. And then we're going to go to Michael in Ohio. Dwayne, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, how you doing, big guy? Good, how are you? Oh, awesome. Awesome, awesome. Hey, I, 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 I had a guy run into me. I had a guy run into me the other day at the uh, out in Salt Lake City, and he said, "You're much smaller in person than you are on camera." <laughs> That's a good thing, man. Oh, it was. I was. I was feeling good all day. I went and ate a pizza just because of it. Damn straight. Yeah. So what's up, uh, my brother? I, I just thought to call in. You know, I actually grew up in Salt Lake, so. Oh. And now I'm down here in California, so it's kind of like we uh, we flip flop, but. Uh, first off, I want to say, you know, I'm grateful for, for you being, you know, being able to, to bring me out of Mormonism and, you know, I open arms took in full preterism and I've been studying this for approximately six years, about the same time that you introduced it. And, you know, I just want to say to people out there. You know, I started a book today called Revelation Realized by Samuel Dawson. Mm. The introduction of that book was like 20 or 30 pages just to set the context of how someone is really supposed to interpret these old texts. Wow. And if you're looking for something and you want to be free from modern Christianity, you know, People balk at, you know, people look at me when I tell them that this is all over with. And, you know, sometimes they, they're like, you know, the hell you say, you, you, you can't take my hope. Yeah. But they don't realize, and I know, you know, you're at a little bit different level of preterism than I am. And to me, you know, I don't no longer feel the guilt because in my understanding of these texts, I'm not in this sin-death relationship that these Israelites were in these texts. Amen! I love it! The people need to realize that, you know, you're actually free of that. And people say, "Well, well, people keep on sinning. And I'm like, but they're only sinning in the context of that text. Yeah. Right. And... You know, you don't have to sit there and have a, you know, I didn't go on a mission, and I'll tell you why. I don't want to drag it on. I could call on for an hour easily, but I had a 
my uncle gave me some beer signs that I put in my bedroom in my parents' house when I was 18, 19 years old. The bishop called me in to ask me for a mission call, and, and he says, you know, I think you have something you want to confess. Wow. And I said, I, I, you know, I don't go to church anymore because I work on Sundays, but I have nothing to confess. What? He thought I was running a tavern, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But people are, are allow, allowing this type of relationship with these churches, you know, to, to ruin their lives. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard to put this fulfilled eschatology in, in people's minds because, unfortunately, there, it, it's, there's a lot to learn and a lot to understand, a lot more than I ever imagined. Yeah. And when I tell people, well, you need to look at this through he Hebraic eyes, they look at me like I'm, you know, stoned. You know, they're like, what are you on? Uh, we don't get it. Yeah. And I'm like, you're reading a text that's, you know, in some cases, four or 5,000 years old. Yeah. People wrote different, thought different. And uh, Revelation is unique because it is written in the ancient style of Hebraic yeah. apocalyptic language. These aren't literal things that are going to happen to us. Right. And in my studies, everybody's like, well, what about these two witnesses? I had a guy this morning. What about the two witnesses? I don't know. Yeah. The text really isn't clear. Yeah. They got resurrected. They received their resurrection. Yeah. And it happened at the fall of the Harlot City. What? The Harlot you know? City. And, that's right. The, the know, Harlot City. I, you got your work cut out for you, brother, but I'm behind you 100%. Dwayne, I could not, I couldn't pay you anything, but I couldn't pay you enough for this call because it shows I'm not just some fringe lunatic. This guy's been studying for six years. He's looking. I have friends in this audience who have, who have studied, and they, they really studied, and they believe it, and they see it too. And, and so, uh, Dwayne, I really appreciate it. I have two questions for you. Okay. One, are you from Walnut Creek or Walnut? Walnut, so by between Diamond Bar and P-Town. Oh, okay. And the second thing is, and, and I just want to get your thoughts on this, I'm amazed, and this is a question I have for all the people who are futurists in their eschatology or whatever, how all these different people of different races, I want to see if you give any credence to this, different religions, non-religions die and experience a glorious afterlife. Do you, have you thought of that? I mean, because if it's fulfilled and Jesus did it, I tend to think that, that all the thing like you were talking about with sin being, you, don't, you aren't under sin because you're not under the law, that, that he really has done it. And so even people who don't know him, they seem to have these experiences where they die and they see a glorious afterlife. Do you have any thoughts on that? My thought is, personally, I do not see God today infringing on anyone. Yeah. I personally believe that he has to be seeked out. Okay. And if we go back to Matthew 15 or 16, uh, Jesus uh, sees a woman in the desert. She said, comes to him and says, I need you to heal my daughter. And he says, go away. I didn't come for you. Yeah. And he tells her three or four times, and he's not telling her nice. He's telling her to get the hell out. And the apostles are like, should we make her go away? And she's like, I have faith. You're, you're the one. You're the Messiah. 
And he says, your faith will heal your daughter, has healed her. Now, if this is my take on this. He said he was only coming for the lost sheep. Right. I personally do not believe that the souls that were to be saved through the redemption of the blood of Christ was for anybody but Israel. I see. So you're Israel only. But that's where I'm leaning. Right. Only because I don't see enough in the text to say otherwise. Yeah. But here's my thing, though, Sean. I was a believer as a Mormon. I still I don't believe in Jesus any differently than I did when I was 15 or 16. Right. And I was in a car accident when I was in high school at lunch one day. I'm sitting in a car in a passenger seat. There's a car full of girls that I went to school with next to me that I'm still friends with today. And I hear a voice of a man outside the car saying, Dwayne, put on your seatbelt. And I'm looking over at this car full of chicks. I don't see anybody. Mm. But I put that belt on, and 300 feet later, I'm in a collision that could have seriously injured me. Mm. But at the time, I was praying to the Lord. I was seeking Him's help. I was asking for His love and His assistance. I don't think He denies that to anybody. Mm-hmm. If He, if somebody is seeking Him today, love the answer. I love it, and, and uh, I, do, I really I appreciate. I don't, not, I don't know what I'm going to go to when I pass. I do not know yet. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. I don't know if anyone knows. All I know is that John made a comment that we don't know what our bodies are going to look like till the Lord returns. Right. But if they were taken at that time, only they know. Right. Great stuff, Dwayne. Really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Keep the faith. God bless you. I will. You too. Bye-bye. You, we had someone in our audience laugh when he I said, I owe only and. I think there's a little bit of a something growing in the air, perhaps. <laughs> Let's go to Mike in Ohio. We're almost out of time. Mike, what's up? Hey, Mr. McCraney. How you doing? Mr. Ohio, doing fine. Yes. An old religion dystopia. The guy that says, oh. hey, happy. Oh. Yeah. Why, huh? Yeah, they're not quite yet to say hooray. That's the noise of the whippy huh. Ex, ex, you know, excelling some air. Anyways, yeah. And first of all, we'd like to wish you and the gang happy new year. The gang and says the same again, to you. Yeah, thank you for all the things you're doing there, man. It's, it takes a lot of guts to do what you're doing. I know that. I have a lot of guts. Yeah, yeah, we all do, especially the older you get. It seems to be oh, man, it's tough. I don't know how these fit guys do it. <laughs> Work out and do everything else. It doesn't go away. I know. Anyways, hey, man, um, somebody, after waiting me on the phone, I had like, I got, I don't know where to go with all this. Uh, okay, the biggest thing is this, okay? So I see what's happening, and this is happening to you, happens to you, a lot of us, when we get honest about the scriptures, that, you know, uh, our world caves in around us. Not just even religious. I mean, I'm seeing the implications uh, in the rest of the world. When we talk about politics and everything else, and how everything is just based on basically a lie. And this lie stems from the fact that he didn't show up, or he did show up, 70 AD, and it's not waiting, it's waiting for something to happen that's not going to happen, 
yeah. to me has been a very useful tool. Yeah. You know, they're controlling people's minds and behavior, whether you're Christian or not. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, there's a lot of people that would not call themselves Christian, but still buy into a lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah. And one of the things I see as a challenge is, and I know you're having a challenge with that, and that is what in the devil is the lake of fire? <laughs> I, I don't have a challenge. I really just think it's God. I, I just think it's the light of God. I, I don't think it's... But I, I could be wrong. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's, it's almost like, okay, I know Jesus is real. I know the spiritual realm is real. The spiritual resurrection makes all the sense to me because I've had things happen. I've seen things, you know, like many other people have. Yeah. And uh, so there's, there's no way that man's... Uh, you know, words on paper can take that away from me because I've had that personal experience. Amen. And praise God. Mike, I have bad news. What's that? We're two and a half minutes over time. Well, that's what, it's, it's your fault, not mine, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is you take true. care, man. God bless you. And uh, I'll call you next month. Or maybe All right. Or, uh, Love you, brother. Have a good new, new year. Yeah, same to you, man. Okay, bye-bye. Three to Bitty Piggy says thousands of missed second coming predictions has frozen and destroyed people's lives for 2000 years now. Bad deal. Not from Jesus at all. And he writes Satanism. Mm-hmm. I think so. And listen, join us next week on Monday night as we continue to talk about these issues here on Heart of the Matter. Good job, boys.